0: Please stand with me for the reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw his spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands he blessed them, and while he blessed them he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. You may be seated. A few months ago, I read an article about the end of the world. And it talked about the possibility that the end of the world would be boring. We expect it to be exciting, interesting, or at least noticeable. It should interrupt our daily life and be cataclysmic, maybe a nuclear war or a comet or a sudden climate catastrophe. Whatever it is, we imagine it coming with a bang then the post-apocalyptic world would come after and people would be living in the shell of the world that was, using bottle caps as currency. But what if it's slow and boring? What if we are watching the world end right now and not even noticing because it's just not fast enough to catch our attention? It was an interesting thought and it came to mind when reading this passage because this concluding section of the Gospel of Luke argues almost exactly the same thing, but in reverse. The world has been radically changed in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and is about to be changed again in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Nothing will ever be the same again. The salvation of the world has begun. But it's a bit hard to explain, actually, It doesn't happen all at once. It's exciting, but also terrifying. And it takes place over weeks of dinners and walks along the road and deep talks about how to interpret scripture. Today I want to look at how the resurrection and ascension of Jesus explode our notions of what is possible in the present, force us to reinterpret what God has been up to in the past, and give us a vision for God's future, for his people, and the world. Everyone has ideas about what they think is possible and impossible. Our experience gives us nice boundaries about about what we think is likely to happen and what is so unlikely that we may as well not even consider it. In the ancient world, People understood just as well as you and I do that people do not just die and then undie. Maybe their heart will stop and start again on the operating table, but that's about the extent of what we expect to be possible. There are plenty of stories in the ancient Near East, in the ancient Mediterranean, of people who traveled to the realm of the dead and then returned. Stories of heroes, lovers, gods, and other characters who cross the uncrossable threshold of death. Our culture has loads of resurrection stories too, many of them with these messianic overtones. But just because we tell stories about rising from the dead does not mean that we expect to attend a funeral with a twist ending. In the real world, the dead stay dead, both now and in the first century. This is why when Jesus showed up in the midst of the disciples, they were startled and they were frightened. Who is this visiting them and what could it mean? In several ways, the scene mirrors the opening scenes of Luke's gospel. Zechariah and Mary both receive visits from the angel Gabriel telling them that they will bear children and that those children will be God's change in the world. Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptizer was impossible. She was far past childbearing age. Mary giving birth to Jesus was impossible. She was a virgin. They are startled and they are frightened, but they believed. And over the next months, they watched the impossible grow in their wombs and come living out into the world. When Jesus appeared in the room with his disciples, The impossible was happening right before their eyes. Their eyes must be fooling them. Maybe it's a ghost, just a spirit that looks like Jesus, but not the man they knew. Jesus is gracious to them. Their eyes may deceive them, so he points to his wounds and says, Touch me. He asks them for food that he can eat. He overcomes their fear by sharing his once-broken body with them and sharing a meal. The Church Father Ambrose wrote that the risen Christ did not have to keep his scars in his resurrected body, but did so in part to inspire the faith of his disciples. As he shares this bodily experience with them, their feelings change. At the beginning, they are startled and frightened, And by the end, they are marveling in joy. Why? Both because their friend who was dead is now alive, and because their ideas about what is possible and impossible have been blown apart. Better things are possible than they could have ever hoped. In the crucifixion, we see the worst kinds of injustice on full display. Religious and political rulers who conspire to hold on to power at the expense of the innocent. Crowds who cheer for a prophet when they get free bread and circus tricks, but turn on him when he will not be the violent revolutionary they want. Friends who pledge their lives and loyalty and abandon each other in the night. A human being sacrificed on the altar of power, greed, envy, and selfishness. When the bloodied corpse of Jesus was cold, hard, and in the ground, it seemed impossible to imagine a world free of sin and the death that it brings. It seemed impossible to imagine that the kingdom of Jesus preached would ever be true on earth. It seemed more impossible than the virgin birth. But when Jesus appeared in the room with them, it became possible. It became possible that Jesus was really, truly alive. It became possible that sin, death, and hell are not the inevitable end of us all. It became possible that tragic funerals can have twist endings, and that the kingdom of God can come even to our world. The resurrected Jesus explodes our notions of what is possible in the present moment. At this point, the attention shifts from the present to the past. Jesus reminded them of the words that he spoke while he was with them, and he opened up their minds to understand what the scriptures had said about him. The thing about stories is that they're always constructed in reverse. As human beings, we are constantly looking back to our past experiences, back into texts and artifacts from the past to try to construct stories that make the world make sense for us. Some people do this professionally, using particularly old material to reconstruct a more distant past, but we all do it every day. When somebody asks you how your day has been, you might say good, or you might say frustrating, but whatever you say, you will dig out a memory and start using it to tell a story that will explain why your day has gone that way. If you meet someone new and you ask them where some of their favorite places are, they will start to remember their favorite experiences and where those took place and then tell you a story. I always love this beach because it's where my family spent the most time together or my husband proposed to me in this city we're always looking into the past, digging into our individual memories and our collective memories, to answer the questions that we have today. It's part of how we make our world make sense and give the world meaning. The thing to understand about what Jesus does here is that if you are Jewish, like everyone in that room was, the texts that we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible are not obviously about Jesus. This is also true for Muslims and other groups who look to these books as scriptures. Genesis meant something before there were Christians to read it, and continues to mean more than what it means to us. What Jesus does here is go through the scriptures the disciples already know, the past they already share, and he gives them a new way of understanding it through the lens of his own death and resurrection. He's been doing this all along, but now it really comes into focus. He says, see here, this story about Jonah and the whale. This is a story about being buried, born again, and repenting. And here, this story about David and his men eating the bread of the tabernacle. This is about me and you and what we're doing when we share the bread and the wine. And when Isaiah speaks of God's suffering servant, he meant Israel But now you see that this also means my suffering. And this psalm that was written for a king like Hezekiah to enter Jerusalem, it was just used for me when I entered. When Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, he showed them how these texts, which have meant many things to many people, have taken on new meaning in light of the impossibly good reality of his resurrection. This is how Jesus' followers continued to read the scriptures as they wrote the first books of the New Testament. This is how we still read them today. We first ask, what did this mean then? And then we ask, what does it mean in Christ? The resurrected Jesus explodes our notions of what is possible in the present. He also forces us to reinterpret what God has been up to in the past. These long talks about the scriptures, these meals of broiled fish are the disciples' first taste of the changed world that they now live in. The present is pregnant with potential. The story of the past is being reformed as a part of God's story of salvation. With these pieces in motion, Jesus commissions them to begin bringing the things they have learned into the future. He gives them a vision of the future in which his death and resurrection and repentance for the forgiveness of sins are proclaimed to every nation, beginning with Jerusalem. They are the witnesses of what has happened already. They are the ones who will testify to their bodily experience of the risen Jesus Christ, and he is telling them what will become of their testimony. Augustine wrote that we who believe today are not so different from the disciples in this story in the kind of faith that Jesus expects from us. We have to believe by faith that Jesus came as a human person, did what he did, said what he said, died and rose from the grave. They were witnesses of these things. But we get to see the church in the world around us. Christ's life and teaching are proclaimed around the world day after day, night after night on a scale which the disciples could never have imagined in lands they had never dreamt of centuries and centuries after their deaths. The disciples had to believe by faith that it would be so. There's a cliffhanger in this passage Jesus tells the disciples that he is sending the promise of the Father upon them and to wait in the city until they are clothed with power from on high. This is the anticipation of Pentecost, the setup for the coming of the Holy Spirit to guide and empower God's people to carry out Christ's work throughout the globe. But for the moment, it is still a promise, still something that requires patience and faithfulness. Then the gospel according to Luke ends the way it began. Sudden and frightening visits from a divine figure and people who are continually in the temple praising God and anticipating his coming kingdom. At the beginning it was Simeon and Anna, an old man and an old woman who spent their lives praying and seeking and hoping to see God's salvation and who announced the arrival of the infant Jesus when he was dedicated. In that story, Simeon prayed, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for a revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Here it is the disciples who have been with Jesus as he lived, died, and resurrected, who are now in the temple praising God. They are looking towards God's promised future for the world. Their understanding of what is possible in the world has been exploded by the resurrection. Their minds have been opened to see the salvation of God that has been accomplished through human history before them. On the surface, they look just like Mary and Zechariah talking with Gabriel, or like Anna and Simeon in the temple but they are living in the first days of a truly changed world. Now, it's possible I haven't done an excellent job at sticking to the script in preparing this sermon. The semester theme is seeing Luke as the gospel of the neighbor. And today is the Sunday of the Ascension. And so far, I've barely mentioned either. But to me, these things are very much intertwined. On the Sunday of the Ascension, we celebrate Jesus being taken up into heaven. That's mentioned just briefly in this passage and discussed in greater detail in Acts chapter one. But the details are not really the point here, I don't think. The point is that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he is still risen from the dead still living and reigning and praying and teaching and loving us. We are today living in a changed world. Past, present and future are all being transformed by the living and ascended Christ. This is what makes loving your neighbor more than an important moral teaching. Of course it is that. Do take it as that but it is also a plan for a healing of a broken world. And I don't know whether I would have a lot of faith in this plan if Jesus had stayed dead. I think I would still find it beautiful, but I wouldn't have a lot of confidence in loving your neighbor as a plan to confront evil. I think I may still follow it most of the time, but hold it at a distance when it came to my politics. For example, I think I would do what Thomas Jefferson did, take a pair of scissors to my Bible, leaving the teachings I liked and cutting out the stories that seemed unrealistic. And when faced with the overwhelming oppressive reality of suffering in the world, I think that sort of faith would just crumple up to nothing within me. But because the Jesus who taught us how to love our neighbor is alive today, I have faith in loving my neighbor as a plan for changing the world. I believe that if we do as he did, we too can be God's good news. Maybe the salvation of the world is not as sudden or as exciting as we would like it to be. But it is here and it is coming. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Please pray with me. Almighty God, whose blessed Son, our Savior Jesus Christ ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things, mercifully give us faith to perceive that according to his promise, he abides with his church on earth even to the end of ages. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God in glory everlasting. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. And may the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you, into the reality of your lives, into your days of struggle, and your days of joy, that he may bring you his peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world and serve the Lord and serve each other joyfully. Amen.